0: Good morning, Uh, my name is Harry Strauss, I'm part of the pastoral team here, I work with primarily adults in the second half of life. As you know, today is the first Sunday of Advent, and our text for today and throughout the entire Advent season would be Isaiah 9-6, a verse that receives a fair amount of tension in the Advent and Christmas season, it's a verse that's very prominent on Christmas cards, very uh, prominent with inspirational writings, and it will show up in different places within our society as well. Uh, One example would be, I think, in our city over the last few years, Isaiah 9-6, or at least a portion of Isaiah 9-6, has been on the sides of some of the buses uh, traveling through the city of Saskatoon. So there were those who felt that this truth is so important, uh, that they paid the cost involved to get this word out into our community, Isaiah 9 6. The text reads For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. So again, we will be profiling uh, these titles over the next uh, four weeks, looking at One per Sunday. The title for today, of course, is Wonderful Counselor. And when I was asked to speak on this text here and these two words, I was immediately uh, taken back to my Faith Baptist Church days when I was a new believer in Christ. Because at the end of every service there, We did this when I was there for two or three years. Uh, They would do a fellowship song, the same song at the end of every service, morning service and the evening service, and the name of the song, His Name is Wonderful, built off of Isaiah 9-6. So right away there was a flood of memories that flowed through me in terms of this verse here and some of the meanings associated with this. So, a question I would invite you to consider as we uh, look at these two words together In what way is Jesus our wonderful counselor? And maybe more specifically, what is the wonderful counsel that Jesus had brought to us and continues to bring to us today? What is the core of that counsel reflected not only in Isaiah? but the entire Bible as a whole. If you had to put it in one sentence, what is it that you would say about that wonderful counsel? So I'm inviting you, as we will begin to look into what this might well mean, to be considering how you would respond to that question, what is the wonderful counsel uh, that Jesus brings to us? And for those of you who are really well acquainted with the Scriptures, if you were to identify one verse from Isaiah that defined what that wonderful counsel is, what verse would you choose? So I invite you to be considering that as we move through the message. And when we get more towards the end of the message, I would like to share with you what I think is kind of that summary verse in Isaiah that reflects this wonderful counsel that we receive from Jesus Christ. Wonderful counsel that is not only there in the book of Isaiah, but I would say the Bible as a whole. But before we step into this, I invite you to think, as, we, as you're thinking about that, I want to provide some background to Isaiah 9-6. For to us a child is born, who was this child initially, originally 2,700 years ago when this was first written. If you were to read Jewish writers without the perspective of the Messiah, Jesus Christ in the New Testament, they would say this refers to Hezekiah the king, the outstanding king that brought good governance to the people of Judah from 715 to 686 B.C., Hezekiah purified the the temple, he repaired the temple, he purged the idols, and he reformed the priesthood. He destroyed the high places of idolatry. And he is the king that brought deliverance to the people of God as recorded in Isaiah chapter 36 through to chapter 39. He may be one of the few kings, maybe the only king that is referenced. And there are four chapters that are dedicated to him and the work in the ministry that he was involved in. One could suggest that he was a hero in that day day and age. He wasn't a perfect king, but he did a lot of things right. So that would be a Jewish perspective. Now, many Christian writers and scholars would also see this text with those Jewish writers as originally... Initially referring to a king and his coronation. And many would see Isaiah 9 6 first, referring to King Hezekiah, uh, who reigned in Judah at that particular point of time. The early church did not have a New Testament the way you and I have one today. The only Bible they had was there. What we would see is the Old Testament. And the early church searched the Old Testament for what they understood to be as prophetic references related to Jesus Christ. They studied their Old Testaments, and they found Jesus particularly in the book of Psalms as well as in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is full with references, prophetic references to Jesus Christ, so that in time... So that in time, believers in Christ came to acknowledge the book of Isaiah as the gospel of Isaiah. So not only would you eventually have, we would eventually have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but we would also have the gospel of Isaiah. And I would associate it with what we are doing here in the Advent season as we're looking again at this verse 9-6. There really is value in looking at the context to that verse. And one possibility for you to consider through the Christmas or the Advent season here is to read the whole book of Isaiah and to look at what is being said in the book of Isaiah and allow that to influence how you see Isaiah 9 verse 6. And in reading verses such as Isaiah 9.6, the early church, they recognized and assumed that a biblical passage with an intended initial meaning could also carry meaning that far exceeded the original intent. So we'll read 9.6 and verse 7 with it as well again, but clearly, as we read this, the intent here is that, yes, this could have included Hezekiah that many years ago, 2,700 years ago, but there's far more here And the early church saw that. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. That couldn't just be Hezekiah. And so the early church saw this as a This is a reference here to Jesus Christ, the prophetic one. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. That couldn't just be Hezekiah. For someone to reign forever and forevermore, they saw in this as a reference to Jesus Christ. As they read the gospel of Isaiah, they saw Jesus, through the pages of the book of Isaiah, and they saw him speaking through this very book as well. So through the centuries, the church came to understand Isaiah 9:6 6 as not solely a reference to King Hezekiah, but also to Jesus the King. It's interesting to observe the U.S. elections, and more specifically the evening of the vote, especially as results would indicate that uh, Donald Trump would be victorious. And there was a certain measure of fear that gripped many Americans, and not only Americans, but other people in other nations as well. And it was interesting to see on Facebook uh, the following day an entry that circulated, which says, no matter who is president, Jesus is king. Jesus is king. The early church believed this and would have seen this text, Isaiah 9-6, as speaking of the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in time as the New Testament emerged, that same truth would come from the pages of the New Testament books. And one notable example would be Revelation, the whole book of Revelation. One of the key thoughts of the book of Revelation, reminding those believers in that first century, those early believers of Christ, is that Jesus Christ is on his throne and he is the King. I think it's something like 47 times that the word throne appears in the New Testament. Out of those, 41 or 42 are all in the book of Revelation. John receiving this revelation, this reminder that Jesus is the king. And so even right at the very opening words of that book, as John wrote that revelation, grace and peace to you from him who was and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spears before his throne, and from Jesus, who's the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Very intentional language that John was using. Revelation was written at a time when the Caesars of the Roman Empire would have made the two presidential hopefuls for this year look like glowing angels. Many of the Caesars were ruthless men, wicked to the core, and persecution with Nero and Domitian and other kings or Caesars as well, it was important for the church to to be reminded that Jesus was the king and he was the ruler of all the kings of the earth. Now going back to Isaiah 9, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In the ancient world, kings were often given exalted titles when they first took office. And again, these initially were probably titles for Hezekiah, but they came to be associated with Jesus Christ. And again, our title today is Wonderful Counselor. So what is the wonderful counsel he has provided to us? Much could be said, but in my reading of Isaiah over the last two weeks, I've chosen three words that in my estimation summarize the core of that counsel, And when we get to the end of the message, I will identify what I would suggest to be a summary verse of this counsel that is there in the book of Isaiah. First word, sin. I admit up front that this is not wonderful news, uh, but part of the counsel is being informed about the bad news. It is counsel that leads to wonderful counsel. Uh, years ago, I heard a Persian proverb. It's got four statements in it. I will uh, read it to you and, uh, in, the, in the form that I initially saw it. And I want to connect with it one or two times with the message. But it goes like this. He who knows not and does not know that he knows, th- does not, let me start from the beginning. <laughs> this is a tongue tire. He who knows not and does not know that he knows not is in the dark. Second one, he who knows not and knows that he knows not is a student, teach him. The third one, he who knows and does not know that he knows is asleep, wake him up. And the final one, he who knows and knows that he knows is wise, follow him. So with this topic of sin, my version of line number one is this. He who knows not about sin and does not know that he does not know about sin, is in a critically precarious place in life. Not only for today, but for all eternity. God wants us to know about the sin problem. The book of Isaiah, I read the book of Isaiah three times in preparation for this message. You cannot escape this news about sin. There was everything within me that said, "I don't want to really be talking about sin today. This is the Christmas season. We want to feel good. I couldn't escape the reality of this prominent thought of sin all the way through the book, this very book here. I will give you a sampling of verses. I'll give you six different samples here of uh, this. Isaiah 5:20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You know what? This is a verse waiting to be discovered in our society. Uh, it is so descriptive, it describes our society so well in terms of those who call evil good and good evil, and then goes on with the text as well. The next one is Isaiah 17, verse 10. You have forgotten God, your Savior. You have not remembered the rock your fortress. The primary issue with all of the prophets, the four major prophets and the twelve minor prophets, is this thing about the people forgetting about God. And it carries through into the book of Romans as well. One of the main sins in the book of Romans is the failure on the part of people to acknowledge God. Uh, God is obviously not happy with that. Isaiah twenty nine fifteen and 16, Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, Who sees us? Who will know? You turn things upside down, as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, You did not make me. Can the pot say to the potter, You know nothing. And so the sin there is disregard, disrespect for God himself that comes through that. Isaiah 31, 6, return, you Israelites, to the one you have so greatly revolted against. Isaiah 64, 6, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We we all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Now, lest you think that is primarily Old Testament stuff and old stuff, it carries through into the New Testament as well. The New Testament is full of references about sin. And perhaps for the most uh, theological statement that we have in our New Testament books, of course, is the book of Romans. And Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, goes to great length to talk about the sinfulness of all of humanity. The key passage in that would be out of Romans chapter 3, verses 10, and I'm not going to read them all, but uh, verse uh, 10 and following, As it is written... There is no one righteous, not even one. There is, there is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I to suggest to you that part of the wonderful counsel of God begins with a counsel as a reminder of the sinfulness of humanity. And the interesting thing is when we link Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, directly with the announcement about the birth of Jesus in the New Testament, Matthew 1, 21, guess what? We end up squarely with that which we've been talking about, the problem of sin. So in Matthew 1, with the angel speaking to Joseph, she says of Jesus, or to Mary, she will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus Because he will save the people from their sin. The very reason for the coming of Jesus was to save us from our sins. His ministry as a counselor includes making us aware of the bad news. So it's one word, but the exhortation that really goes with that one word is, take seriously the matter of sin now and ongoing would be part of the counsel of Jesus to us. Can we move to something more positive now? (laughs) The second word is grace. At the core of the Christmas story is the coming of a king, a wonderful counselor who brings grace. We all desperately need the grace of God, for because of sin, we are broken people. I might even use the word sometimes, we are dysfunctional. I'm presently studying the book of Genesis, and as I do so, I'm struck by the degree of dysfunctionality with most of the families in the book of Genesis. And it's all rooted back to this problem of sin. So here you have Isaac and Rebecca with a marriage made in heaven. Those of you acquainted with the story, is there no more better story in all the Bible about how a man and a woman meet and they get married? If there is a marriage made in heaven, it's Isaac and Rebekah. And yet Isaac doesn't seemingly embrace the prophetic word given to her that Jacob should have priority over Esau. So she, in turn, eventually resorts to tricking and deceiving her husband in order to elevate Jacob over Esau. What kind of marriage was that? I mean, if I was tricking and deceiving and not being upfront with my wife, that just wouldn't be healthy. I mean, didn't Isaac and Rebecca take premarital counseling and know the ABCs of communication and the importance of transparency and the importance of trust in a marriage relationship? I mean, it is dysfunctional to the core in a lot of different ways in terms of the marriage. And then what, what evolves out of that with Jacob and Esau being separated for 20 years? Or what about some of the sexual acting out in Genesis that is unsettling and quite frankly embarrassing? Here is Judah who sees a woman who he thinks is a shrine prostitute. Caesar decides to pause and to take in a little sexual activity with this prostitute for that afternoon. I mean, this is Judah! Now, it's a long time removed, 2,000 years later, that Jesus will be born, but Jesus comes from the line of Judah itself. Or what about Joseph and his jealous brothers and the plot to get rid of Joseph, which initially included the conspiracy to murder I think that would be an offense today. Probably go to jail, these brothers. But ultimately took expression in the milder form of simply selling them off as a slave. Probably go to jail for that as well. Dysfunction and the related sin is all over the pages of this book of Genesis. Here's what's really astonishing. What is really astonishing is that God chooses to work through them. God, by way of his grace, stays with them. And he does the same for us. This is the wonderful news. This is the wonderful counsel. The grace of God is here for us. And there is so much hope tied in with that very thought. That As we live in this world of sin, and the sin that we ourselves deal with, and maybe the dysfunction that comes because of our interaction with the world, the grace of God was there. Implied to maybe, I guess, would be the word we use in the book of Genesis. But nonetheless... The grace of God is there because he chooses to continue to work with these people. Now, again, grace is, I think, more implied in the book of Genesis, uh, more explicit in the book of Isaiah, and then fully revealed when we get to the, to the New Testament itself. But here are a few examples from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 40, 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Your sins are being paid for. You have received from the Lord's hand double for all your sins. So what he's saying here, this prophetically, is the Spirit of God is speaking as Isaiah. If this is the measurement of your sin life, the grace is over here. Double that amount. Obviously taking care of the sin that is there. The assumption here now, of course, though, is that there is confession and repentance of sin. The assumption here is that there is a resolve to live righteously, avoiding sin. There is no suggestion here. or There's no suggestion in Genesis of intentionally sinning so that grace might abound. It's interesting that Paul, the apostle, when he's dealing with this in the book of Romans, he says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? He says, may it never be. May it never be. So Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remember your sin no more. Or Isaiah 44, verse 2, I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And how? Ultimately, we have to say it is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the interesting thing about the book of Isaiah, there's a direct linkage, I would say, from Isaiah 9:6, wonderful counselor, to Isaiah 53, the amazing prophetic word about the cross event, written some 700 years before the Easter story actually took place. If you're not acquainted with that, you may want to go to Isaiah 53 sometime today or maybe later this week and read that passage of Scripture, which we oftentimes read in the Easter story. And you read that account, and this is an account that can only reference Jesus Christ and what happened in the Easter story, Good Friday and his death on the cross. Isaiah 53, I'll give you three verses, though the, this is sort of typical of the whole chapter. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For to us a child is born, the manger always leads to the cross. Is the perspective and should be the perspective as we look at this. Years ago, uh, we um, and I was involved uh, as well. We would send out a Christmas newsletter every year and Judy Judy would write a long portion of it and then I would write the, the last portion of it as well. But as a rule, we took this little clipping out and we put it as, a, as, as part of our newsletter. And it's a clipping in which shows uh, right up here in the top, this is the manger scene, the birth of Jesus Christ, but it always leads over to the cross event. We connect the Christmas story with the Easter story as well. So if I were to pick up on this Persian proverb, or a couple of them, he who does not know, and does not know that he does not know about the grace to be found in Jesus Christ, is missing out on critically good news, uh, critical to his spiritual salvation and eternity. And I would add another one as well that says, he who knows and knows that he knows about the grace of God has much to be helpful for and has cause to celebrate. And that's one of the things, one of the pieces that comes out in the book of Isaiah. There's a great deal of, as people are aware of their sin, they experience the forgiveness and the grace of God, and there is a great deal of rejoicing and singing because of that relationship with God. So, word one is sin. Word two is grace. Uh, word number three is invitation. And this will take us to conclusion uh, with a message and will take us into our time of response. With this word, I'll give you what I would suggest is not only the summary verse of Isaiah, but also the summary statement for what I think is the wonderful counsel of Isaiah 9-6. I go to Isaiah 1-18, and I'd like to suggest that this might be the summary verse of the counsel, the wonderful counsel of God. Come now, let us settle the matter. Or in the older translations, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, that's the sin portion. They shall be white as snow, that's the grace portion. Though they are red like crimson, that's the sin part. They shall, be like, they shall be like wool. And with this one, we also have the invitation right up front. Come now, let us settle the matter. The tenor, the tone of the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation is one of God inviting. Uh, inviting inviting come come i looked up that word in the concordance and it just appears multiple times come come Uh, yes you've had your sin but let's deal with that would you repent of that would you confess of that and come and be back in relationship with me Um, so uh, isaiah 55 1 i will just read a few here isaiah 55 is really the invitation chapter of the book of isaiah Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. A few other examples from the New Testament, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. James 4, 8. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. And it carries right through to the final chapter of the book of scriptures, Revelation twenty two seventeen. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Uh, Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. The exhortation around that word is, take Jesus up on his invitation. Take him up on that invitation. Three words, sin, grace, invitation, all for the wonderful counsel from Jesus, our wonderful counselor who gives us hope. Amen.